Father, we pray that you would help us now to hear and to understand your word. But more than that, Father, we ask that you would help us to experience and to enjoy your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you find when you open your post box or you stoop to uh, lift the post from the mat at the front door? You're likely to find a whole series of different items, each sent with a particular purpose in mind. So you might have some of those glossy leaflets showcasing the special offers at a local supermarket, and their purpose is to make you buy groceries from them. You might find an official-looking envelope with a bill inside it. Its purpose is to make you pay at your bills. There might be a postcard sent by a friend from their exotic holiday, which has probably arrived after they've arrived home. And that purpose is to let you know that they're having a great time far, far away. And you might have wedding invitations or birthday cards or a little handwritten note just to say hello and to invite you to some special function. This evening we're coming towards the end of Peter's first letter. And as we've been reading along week by week, perhaps you've been wondering what his purpose has been. Why did he write this letter? Well, you don't need to wonder anymore. If you've closed your Bible, we're on page 1220 and 1221. And you see there in verse 12 that he very helpfully tells us why he has written. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So in this brief letter, it's taken us about, I don't know, nine weeks, ten weeks maybe, uh, to work through it. But in this brief letter, he is writing to encourage you, first of all, and also to testify that this is the true grace of God, and therefore that we should stand fast in it. And if you've been with us over recent weeks, you'll hopefully have heard and experienced that encouragement that Peter sought to give us. We've seen how Peter reminds us that as Christians, we are God's elect, strangers in the world. We have been chosen by God, we have been made his children, and we have been saved by him through the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. But that means that we are strangers in the world. We stand out. We are different. And it can be hard to live like that. The temptation is to just go with the flow, to blend in. But Peter wants to encourage us in our Christian life. And he does that by confirming that this really is the true grace of God that we need to stand fast in. Those 
twin themes of encouragement and true grace have been seen throughout the letter. Perhaps when you go home tonight, read through the letter again and notice every time that he mentions grace or he gives us encouragement. But those twin themes are particularly clear in this final section as Peter addresses first the elders, then the young men, and then everybody. So let's dive in as Peter turns first to the elders, to the leaders of the church. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Peter is speaking to the leaders of the churches. That word elders is uh, the Greek word presbyteros, which guess what you get from that? uh, Presbyter or Presbyterian. So Presbyterian church has loads of elders in it. Uh, In the Church of Ireland, uh, I'm a presbyter, I'm a priest, uh, one of the church leaders. Uh, Peter is speaking to the church leaders, but notice that he doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say, You're elders, I'm an apostle, you better listen to me and do what I tell you. That's not what he does. Rather, he appeals to them on three grounds in verses 1 and 2. He says, first of all, I appeal as a fellow elder. You see, Peter is also doing the same thing. He is an elder, a presbyter in his local church, so he knows what he's talking about. It's not, you know, sometimes people are promoted and then they think that, you know, they're better than everybody else. He's saying, no, I'm on the same level as you. Second, he appeals as a witness of Christ's sufferings. He has seen up close the cost of Christian leadership, seen in Christ's own sufferings for his people as he died on the cross. And then thirdly, he appeals as one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. He's encouraging us that hardship now leads to glory then. That the struggle is worth it. And what are the elders to do? It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. It's the image of a shepherd with sheep as he watches over them and cares for them. And Peter then goes on to give some conditions of their shepherding in a series of not this, but that. So he says, serving as overseers, verse 2, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So the elders are to serve, not not under compulsion because they have to, and not greedy for money, and not lording it over the flock. But rather they're to be willing to serve, and eager to serve, and examples to the flock. And notice that church leaders are only under shepherds. They're not the boss. This isn't my church. Uh, 
but working under and for the Lord who is the chief shepherd. He says, verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. What an encouragement to pastors to keep going. It's not always easy, but that imperishable crown awaits when the chief shepherd appears. So pray for our church leaders, for encouragement and grace to stand firm in the task. Young men in the same way are to be submissive to those who are older. But the main word is for everyone, as we see in the middle of verse 5 there. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. As we relate to one another, we're not to come across as proud or to put ourselves as high and mighty. Rather, we're to be clothed in humility. It's to be a conscious decision, something that we choose to do. So earlier today, whether it was this morning or this afternoon before you came out, you decided what you would put on. And I have to say, you all look lovely tonight, so you do. Great outfit choices. Uh, You had to decide what to wear. And Peter is saying that we also have to decide to wear humility, to clothe ourselves with humility. As you you button up your shirt or as you pull on your skirt, uh, to also decide to put on humility, to be clothed in it. Why? Because God says in his word that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God only gives grace to those who are humble and not to those who are proud. You see, if you're proud, you think that you have done it all yourself and you can do it all yourself and so therefore you don't need any help, you don't need God. You have no call for grace if you're proud. But if you're humble, in the words of Consecration Prayer 3, which we're not using tonight, if you know your need of grace, then God is glad to give it to you. We're to humble ourselves so that God will lift us up in due time. And we have a great illustration of that tonight as we gather at the Lord's table. See, we don't come proudly boasting of our achievements. We come humbly with open hands to receive from God. And Peter says that we can be confident of God's goodness. As verse 7 tells us, he cares for us. And so we can cast all our anxiety, or in the older version, we can cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Grace comes from the Lord. And as we look to God, 
we're also to be aware of the danger that comes from our enemy. Look at verse 8. It says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The devil is pictured as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's on the prowl. But we don't need to be the devil's devouring. We're to be self-controlled and alert. And we resist him as we stand firm in faith. Peter's telling us to remind ourselves of who we are. A child of God and whose we are. Uh, Jesus' blood-bought people. And Peter reminds us that we're not alone. You see, sometimes whenever we're suffering, we think, I'm the only one going through something like this. But Peter reminds us that our brothers and our sisters uh, throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The family of God is suffering all over the world. So stand with them. Resist the devil together. That's why the ending of the New Testament letters are so important. You know, often we, we might think that the last couple of verses really have nothing to tell us because they're just a list of names and sure, we don't know any of the people. So uh, what's the point of that? But those lists, are people sending and receiving greetings. They are partners in the gospel, sharing together in suffering, but also in encouragement. That reference in verse 13 to Babylon, see who is in Babylon. Babylon is a code name for Rome, the city of Rome, where Peter is. Babylon being the name of God's enemies for a long time. They were the people that came and took the people of Israel away into exile. And so Babylon is code for Rome, just as we see in uh, Revelation as well. (coughs) And so she who is in Babylon, that's the church, the the believers who are in Rome, uh, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. He's saying you're not alone. Christians are in it together. One family. One body. Chosen together with you. Did you notice that? Another little reminder of the theme of the letter. Chosen with that one great hope. And it's that hope that Peter finishes his letter with. That benediction in verses 10 and 11 really does summarize the whole letter. Excuse me. That benediction summarizes the whole letter as well as Peter's purpose in writing it. Remember what we've seen over these past weeks. Peter is writing to encourage Christians 
to testify to the true grace of God which we are to stand in. It's by grace that we are chosen, by grace we are saved, and by grace that we live as strangers in the world. Now listen to what he says. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. All grace comes from the God of grace. He has called us to his eternal glory and so we are his chosen people. But first comes a little while of suffering because we are strangers in the world. But look at what God will do in the end. How completely we will be transformed. How it will all have been worth it in the end. That hope of resurrection that he started the letter with comes around again as he says, he will, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Stuart Townend sums it up so well in his song, There is a Hope. When sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul for I am truly whole. This is the true grace of God. And it's yours tonight, if you're a believer. And it can be yours tonight if you don't already enjoy it. What an encouragement when life is difficult. When struggles seem unbearable. When you wonder if it would be easier just to give up. We have grace now. We have grace in our future. Because we know the God of all grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would know that grace more and more in our life. We pray that you would help us to focus on that hope that is ours. That you would indeed bring us home. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.